0: Uh, the death of Christ, His last three hours of the cross last week. Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to have the resurrection. Well, what comes between those two is the burial. You know, I'd like to say, who assigned me this passage? Between the cross and the resurrection, there's the burial. But that would be me. So I can't blame anyone for giving me this Passage which doesn't get that much attention. I mean, when you're talking about the cross and you're talking about the resurrection, I mean, these are this is the gospel. But in between these two is the burial of of our Lord Jesus Christ. The burial passage is the period or the exclamation point to the cross. The burial shows that our Lord really died. Not as some unbelievers try to contend that he just passed out or swooned on the cross and he wasn't really dead. I mean, you need to think about that. He was flogged within an inch of his life, we found out last week. His hands and wrists were were useless, being damaged by the nails... His feet and ankles were useless. Oh, and he had a spear thrust to his side. So he had a collapsed lung, and it wasn't just a poke. It penetrated deep enough to pierce the sac, the area around the heart. And out came blood and water. might have even pierced his heart as well. He was as dead as a man could get. The burial is that exclamation point. He truly died. But it is also the foundation. The burial is the foundation of the resurrection. The burial and the empty tomb on resurrection morning is the physical, historical evidence of the Christian faith. How do we know our Lord rose from the dead? Because of the empty tomb. There are other reasons as well, but that was something you could reach out and hold and touch. Yes, some could do that with our Lord as well when he would appear to them in the 40 days after he rose from the dead. But the empty tomb is the physical evidence that was used in the early church to testify that our Lord has risen from the dead. The burial is very important theologically. It shows that he has died and it is the evidence that he rose from the dead. So the burial holds a very, very important part in the Christian faith. He just didn't swoon. He just didn't faint. And then when placed in the tomb, wrapped tightly in grave clothes, embalmed. Yes, the women were coming with spices on resurrection morning. But Joseph and Nicodemus had 100 Roman pounds, 12 ounces to a pound. That's how the Romans figured it. About 72 pounds of spices holding those wrappings together as Joseph and Nicodemus embalmed Christ, who was dead. Here's a man who must have been dead. I mean, he had a collapsed lung, a a sucking chest wound. (laughs) He had useless hands and feet. The heart, as I already said, was probably pierced. We know that he died. Another false theory is that he he was revived... After he swooned, he revived, and with these damaged hands and feet, he moved a stone that weighed somewhere between two and 3,000 pounds. Against gravity, he moved it, rolled it back up out of the way, and somehow, without being heard, he escaped 16 armed Roman soldiers, or he overpowered them. See, every explanation... It's just foolish. You just can't believe these things. Um, I'm not going to go through the other explanations. uh, Our brother Gilson may next week, and I don't want to steal his thunder if he chooses to go through some of these. But the tomb and the burial is so important. I I hope you can see that. But besides the, the key theological aspects of the burial... In that tomb, there's also many practical things that we could learn that should affect us and the life that we live for Christ. And we're going to focus on that for the rest of our time this morning. We're going to look at that account that our brother David read for us and try and learn some lessons from it that we ...could put into practice by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit... ...we could put into practice and live out in our life. Before we get to that... ...I just want to show you what Scripture says about the resurrection. And if there's a resurrection, there's an empty tomb. When I said it, it was so important... ...Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching... ...the preaching of the gospel is in vain. Your faith also is in vain... For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. This is how important it is. And the empty tomb is the proof of that resurrection. I want you to think back for a moment. Think back to some Christmas, perhaps, or a birthday, when you were a child. Or maybe you've seen, can remember your own children or even your grandchildren in some case. They've been asking mom and dad or perhaps you or I asked mom or dad for something on Christmas or our birthday. Over and over again, we wanted this particular toy or whatever it is, this particular set of whatever. We wanted it, we wanted it. We said it loud and clear. And then we see the presents wrapped up and we tear into it, and we open that present, and it's undershirts or socks. Did that ever happen to you? Your heart just sinks. I know what happened to me as a child. I can remember being back home from college that weekend. (laughs) Just kidding. I had outgrown that by that point. But I'm sure we can all relate in some fashion to that. The greatest of all disappointments or perhaps uh, you were a senior in high school and you were looking forward to the prom at the end of the year. And and, uh, you were hoping so-and-so would ask you or if you asked uh, a person that you wouldn't be turned down and you were never asked. Or maybe you were turned down and how you felt. The disappointment. When you're longing and counting on something, when it's the focus of your time and attention and efforts, and all of a sudden it does not come to pass, how do you feel? You feel let down. You feel discouraged. You feel despondent. You might even become depressed. In fact, Proverbs tells us about this. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life, is to the heart a tree of life. When something you're counting on doesn't happen, it's deferred, your heart feels sick. But when it's realized, it's like a tree of life. It gives life. There couldn't be anything better. There couldn't be anything more than this when you realize that expectation, when it finally comes to pass, this passage is very much like that. His disciples, both the men and the women, they had been counting on something. They had been counting on Christ being hailed the king, crowned the king, sitting on the throne of David, ruling over the world. Instead, what happened? He died a criminal's death. He died in the place of a murderous traitor. He took his place on the cross, and by extension, he took all of our places on the cross and underwent the wrath and judgment of God. I mean, can you imagine? For three years, these people had been following him. They gave up their life, many of them, They left their businesses. They became wholly devoted to him day after day. Not just the 12, there were many more women who followed him. And now, this he dies, and then the certainty that he died is that he's buried all the hope, they unwrapped that gift, and it was socks. The title of this morning's message is, of course, The Burial of Jesus. In this passage, Jesus is revealed as being faithful unto death and the source of faithfulness to his people. If you take only one thing away from this morning's message let it be this Jesus was faithful and you should be too and be always looking to him to strengthen your faith. We're going to see how the concept of faithfulness comes out if that doesn't float your boat you could have I could have looked at this passage in terms of devotion from the heart, devotion to Jesus. But what's behind outward devotion that we can see is the inward faithfulness. So let's see how this passage reveals faithfulness relative to Jesus. Not his faithfulness, but what focusing on Jesus and his faithfulness will do to produce faithfulness in us. I'm going to look at it under these six headings. I won't take the time to read them, Let's look at the first one. Faithfulness can't stop gazing at Jesus. In verse 40, there were also some women looking on from a distance. Even though they were off from the scene of the crucifixion, even though they didn't approach as close as Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the apostle John did, even though they weren't as close as the centurion and the other Roman soldiers who crucified him, even though they were not as close as the priests and the others who mocked him during those first three hours as he hung on the cross, they were still looking on from a distance. The distance did not cause them to lose interest and wander away and get occupied with something else. The distance for them was no excuse to keep from focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. How appropriate is this for you and I? We view Christ from a distance. We are not in glory. We are not in heaven. We are not in the Father's house where our Lord is, seated at the right hand of God. We are viewing him through the eyes of faith from a distance How much are you and I like these women? Does the distance we are from Christ, does that cause us to lose interest, to not gaze intently upon him, to not long for him and look for him? Not just his coming, not just when he comes to snatch his bride up to be with himself, But each day, in each moment of each day, in each activity that we do, in each place that we are, in each company that we keep, are we like these women looking for Jesus, looking to Jesus, so that we would be faithful like these women? Among them were Mary Magdalene. In Luke chapter 8, we're told that Christ cast seven demons out from her. Here was a woman whose heart was filled with gratitude, with appreciation for how the Lord Jesus Christ transformed her life, changed her life. From being in the hands of evil spirits, she was freed and placed in God's care, taken Under the Lord's care. Again, is this not a perfect picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for everyone here this morning who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation? Are we not like Mary Magdalene? Oh, we may not have been possessed by seven demons, but we were on the path to hell, on the path to judgment. And the Lord delivered us, no less miraculously, no less awesomely than he delivered Mary Magdalene. He caused us to be born again, God the Father did, to a living hope. That hope's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith and trust in him. There was Mary, the mother of James the Less, sometimes called James... uh, the son of Alpheus. In case you're wondering, this Mary, who is the wife of Alpheus. See, if we understand what the Greek name Alpheus means, then we know what the Hebrew equivalent is. Why is that important? Well, uh, we know Simon Peter. Simon or Simeon is his Hebrew name. Peter or Petros was the Greek name that Christ gave to him. He was known as Simon Peter. Well, Alphaeus has a Hebrew equivalent. It's Clophas. Look in Luke 24, and you see on the road to Emmaus, that evening, Jesus appears to Clophas and another disciple. That other disciple was very possibly Mary his wife. And she's mentioned here, gazing from a distance. She was the mother of James the less. James the son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve apostles. The Lord Jesus Christ had changed the life of her son. It set him in a new direction to follow and live for Messiah she too had this gratitude this gratefulness for what the Lord had done for her family and there was a third woman Salome who was there as Mark records all of these women so faithful what's lacking here is the name of any man looking on from a distance. We would find out that they're going to be hiding in an, in an upper room. John, who was there, had already left to take Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his own home and care for her. But it's, it's only women's names that are mentioned. I, I can't help but be struck by this. You look at most churches, not just in the United States, but even in foreign countries, even more so perhaps in Europe and Great Britain and, uh, and in Russia and in other former Soviet, Eastern European countries, and in churches in China, even. Women seem to always outnumber the men. I, I, I'm not quite sure why that is. I mean, I could think that, and I've known many women, they're very, very spiritually minded. I love to hear women pray. They pray differently than a man. There's something that can be learned from the way they pray. They view their Lord and the Christian faith different than a man, and there's something that could be learned from that as well. Their devotion. I mean, why is it that women's Bible studies seem to be, generally speaking, have far greater attendance than men's Bible studies. That's been my experience over the years. Perhaps it's been yours as well. It says something. No one should ever look down upon women. They are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Paul makes that very clear. There's neither Greek nor Jew, male or female. All are one in Christ. Yes, there might be different roles based on spiritual gifting and other matters, but they are all equal before God. Faithfulness can't stop gazing at Jesus, and now we're going to see part of the reason for that. Faithfulness is fueled by service for Jesus. Mark goes on and talks about these women, and he says, When in Galilee they used to follow him and serve him, and there were many other women, who came up with him to Jerusalem. These women who followed the Lord, they were more active than men, perhaps on a similar level to the 12 apostles in terms of their activity and service for the Lord Jesus Christ. They followed him. I mean... This was not easy. They they didn't have an air-conditioned bus to drive around Galilee and Judea in. They walked everywhere that they went. Not only did they follow him, but they also served him. You think walking 12 hours in a day might have been enough, but no, they're going to serve as well. And in fact, from some other passages we get the idea that they also supported Christ and his apostles financially as well as serving with their hands. But there were many other women as well who came up with them to Jerusalem. This is what fueled that devotion. This is what fueled them to intently gaze on Jesus From a distance. This is why the distance didn't matter to them. Because their life was devoted to following him and serving him. So when you have that level of service, that level of devoted following, distance is no matter. It doesn't matter at all. And they even came to Jerusalem with him. Now, I just want to throw out a little tidbit here. I do this from time to time. You know that. You know, there, there's some people who laugh and scoff at God's word. How can you believe that book? You know, it's filled with fairy tales. You really believe that a whale swallowed Jonah? Someone has once said, I not only believe that a whale swallowed Jonah, but if the Bible said Jonah swallowed a whale, I'd believe that too. See, within 120 years after Christ's crucifixion, people didn't understand what the land of Israel looked like. They had all been scattered from the land a final scattering in 135 A.D., about 105 years after Christ was crucified, and nobody understood what the geography was like. They didn't understand distances in Israel because almost no one was living there after the Romans scattered them again in 135 A.D. And so people wrote stories. They wrote false gospels. There might be around 16 of them, give or take, that were written over the next 200 years after the apostle John died. And they all claim, some of them claim to be written by Peter and Jude and Barnabas and Thomas to try and lend credence to their story. But because they had never lived in Israel, during the time of Christ and the apostles, 100, 200 years earlier, they had no clue. When they read about the sea sea that Capernaum was on, we know that's the Sea of Galilee, they thought it was the Mediterranean Sea. And they actually wrote things of that nature that put Capernaum and Jerusalem on the coast when they were both inland. So what does all this have to do with came up to Jerusalem? Well, if, if I had saw a friend in, uh, in Boston, um, I might say, since I live in Swansea, you know, are you coming down for the weekend? Are you coming down? Or if uh, someone in Florida, I might say, are you coming up to stay with family for the holidays? Come up to Massachusetts. See, that's the way we talk about that. Why? Probably because we look at a map. And the north is higher up, and the south is further down. So that's how we use up and down. But they didn't do that in our Lord's day. They didn't go by north or south. They came up with them for Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem's down here in Judea. Galilee's up here. How do they go down? I mean, how do they go up? You see, it's wrong. The Bible's false. No, but that's not the way they talked. They didn't talk relative to north and south. They talked relative to elevation. See, Jerusalem was 2,000 feet elevation. So going from Galilee, even though you're going from north to south, you had to go up to be at Jerusalem. That's the way they talked. The only one who would know this is someone who was alive during that time. I'm laboring this point. Because there is so much of this type of detail in the Gospels and in Scripture that if you see these things and know that only an eyewitness would know of these things, then you know the Scriptures were written by eyewitnesses. They weren't made-up stories later on. This is the level of detail that an eyewitness includes. You can trust your Bible. Don't let anyone ever shake your faith in God's word. This was written by an eyewitness to these events. Someone who's intimately familiar with every aspect of Jewish life at the time of Christ. Even how they talked about going from north to south, rising in in elevation. Let's see how faithfulness can't stop serving Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Recall the Sanhedrin. The ruling body, the Supreme Court, seventy members, and the High Priest. This is the body that went to Pilate and told him, "Crucify this man. He's a traitor." These are. This is the ruling body that turned Christ over to the Romans. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, and so was Nicodemus. The Gospel according to John, John mentions that Nicodemus went with Joseph. Here are two of the leaders in Israel who had placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. From Nicodemus being told, you must be born again, He and Joseph now are born again. And they just weren't members of the Sanhedrin. They were prominent members. Joseph, perhaps because he was a wealthy man. Money always seems to, amongst ungodly people, money talks. And he had held in prestige by them because of his wealth. God has his people everywhere. God has his people everywhere. From every class and walk of life, no one is beyond the grace of God. For God to reach out, powerfully convict that person and bring them low so that they believe and trust in Christ. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for Jesus to sit on the throne. And even though all his hopes were dashed, that that kingdom, in its physical earthly form, would not be coming right at that moment, still, he gathered up courage. He was going. To, he he was, he was not going to be able to hide this. This was his come to Jesus moment. I mean, he was going to have to step. Up, stepped forward and proclaim to everyone that he was a follower of Jesus, the very Jesus they had just crucified. He was putting his neck on the chopping block. But he gathered up courage. It wasn't easy for him. He had to gather it up. It didn't come naturally for him. He, apparently, he had been hiding amongst the Sanhedrin, not trying to make too many waves, though he was a true believer. But there comes a point in every true believer's life, just like it did in Joseph's and Nicodemus, according to the Gospel of John, where you can't be silent any longer. You have to speak up for your Savior and Lord. You have to make it be known that you are one of them. You are a Christ follower. You are a Christian. And so he gathered up courage. Faithfulness can't stop serving Jesus even when there's fear, even when there may be consequences. Faithfulness must continue to serve Jesus. Faithlessness can't believe about Jesus, no matter what. Faithlessness cannot believe about Jesus. Joseph went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if. Now, that translation doesn't do justice, in my opinion. That word wondered doesn't have the sense of he wondered about it. Sure, he doubted it, but it's even stronger. Pilate marveled. Pilate marveled at the fact that Joseph said he was dead already. Pilate was amazed that Jesus would be dead already. People would last two, three days on the cross. And he'd only been on there a bit over six hours by this point. He was marveling. And even though he was amazed at this aspect about Jesus, even though some you might know in the world are amazed at certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ, what a display of love, what a teacher of truth. They can't believe. So he summoned the centurion. That same centurion who in Luke said, truly, this man was innocent, and who Matthew and Mark said, truly, this man is the Son of God, when Christ died and breathed his last. He asked that centurion, a man who knew death, the man who was overseeing the crucifixion of Christ and the two others on either side of him, he questioned the centurion as to whether he was dead already. We know to hasten the death, they would break the legs. But they didn't break Christ's leg because he was dead already, and John tells us he received a spear thrust in his side just to make sure he wasn't faking it. And so he learned from the centurion that he was dead, and he granted Christ's body to Joseph even though he heard from the centurion that Christ was dead, perhaps even in great detail about how he died. No, no, sir, we did not need to break his legs. No, sir, he was dead already. No, he died in the most amazing way. He shouted with his last breath, in full strength, And then just died. No, sir, I've never seen that happen before. No matter what evidence was presented to Pilate, he couldn't place his faith and trust in Jesus. He just passed Jesus off to Joseph. He didn't say, I got to look into this more. This man stood in front of me. This is amazing. You're right, centurion. This never happens. There's something else about this man. He said his kingdom wasn't of this world. No interest on Pilate's part. Faithlessness cannot believe about Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ made this very clear in Luke chapter 16. He, he tells a story about a rich man and another dead man named Lazarus. And, and at the end, the rich man says, please send Lazarus back from the dead. I have brothers. Send Lazarus back that he could warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment that I'm in. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they do not listen to the written word of God and what it has to say, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I was once sharing the gospel at lunchtime with a co-worker who approached me. And he said, if God would only give me a sign, I would believe. I would believe. And I said, so you mean if somebody... Rose from the dead, you would believe? Yes, that's the sign I want, that somebody would rise from the dead, then I'll believe. And I'll say, he already rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. There were over 500 witnesses to it. There was an empty tomb left behind, but he wouldn't believe. See, if you're not going to believe the testimony of God's word, you're not going to believe no matter what. Jesus himself said that. They will not believe even if a man rises from the dead. Faith is so important. Brothers and sisters, you know, we talk about Christian evidences and and Roy and our brother Jim Silvera are, uh, are putting together groups to study these kinds of things so that you could respond about the resurrection of Christ and the truthfulness of God's word and that it's eyewitness testimony. But there's always going to be required a measure of faith because God designed it that way. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Elsewhere, Scripture says, you know, we don't hope for what we see. Faith is going to be required. In the Christian life, day to day, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk in faith trusting that God knows best as to how we ought to live our life. Again, in Hebrews 11, it says, For without faith it is impossible, impossible, no way around it, no loophole, no little crack to shimmy through. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe. Faith, belief is not optional. Must believe that God is, that God exists. And then he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, it's amazing. God doesn't owe us anything. And in fact, if all he gave us was salvation, eternal life in Christ, he has given us more than we ever deserved, more than we can imagine. Yet he's still a rewarder of those who seek him. He gives reward. We shouldn't need it. We shouldn't expect it. But that's how much our Father in heaven loves us. But you need faith for him to be your Father. You need faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faithfulness sacrifices to serve Jesus. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took Christ down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb. There was a sacrifice on Joseph's part, it cost him some of his funds, some of his money but it also cost him some of his time. Not only did he go to Pilate, and having gotten permission, being a wealthy man, I'm sure he had servants, or he could have hired someone. Here, go take Jesus down from the cross. No, he went with Nicodemus. They took him down, and they didn't pass him off. They wrapped him themselves. They embalmed him with those 72 pounds of spices, and then they laid him in a tomb, there was sacrifice of resources. There was sacrifice of time and effort. Brothers and sisters, true faithfulness to Jesus, through true devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ, sacrifices to serve Him and to serve His people. True faithfulness doesn't just serve when it's convenient. When it's easy. When there's nothing better on television to watch. That's an ugly picture, isn't it? That's vulgar. True faithfulness to Jesus sacrifices. Doesn't just serve when it's easy or convenient. Or when it likes to do something. Oh, I like to do that. i yeah, I'll volunteer for that. Joseph laid... Jesus in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Here's the same tomb from two different angles. Here's the stone. This entrance was at most four feet high. Archaeologists have uncovered ancient first century tombs. This stone weighed, it was made out of sandstone or limestone, the two most predominant stones in that area and it weighed probably uh, between two and 3,000 pounds. Uh, there was a track here that went down on an angle, and there's usually a little rock right around here to keep the stone from rolling over. The stone would have to be levered back this way, the rock removed by a second person, and then you better get out of the way because the stone's going to want to come down, might need a little force on that side, and it would seal the tomb. Look, they've cut some rocks to put in front, so the stone is gonna be sandwiched between the rock of the hill here that the tomb's carved into, and this stone in front. These stones are far too heavy for even two or three men to lift. Here's a picture of another tomb. This is a rich man's tomb. The entrance might have been a little higher. Notice, not only is it dug in, but they've actually built an arch. Got a keystone here in the arch, an arch and some others. And the stone that's going to be rolled in front of the rich man's tomb is hidden in a track, even if it's cut into the rock. And it's going to cover that entrance. That's what some of the first century tombs look like. My favorite is this next one, which my uh, sister-in-law, Vicki Pacheco, sent to me. And, I mean, this this is obviously my favorite tomb. Lockdown never really worked around Resurrection Sunday. You know, the interesting thing is the stone was rolled away by an angel not to let Christ out. He was already gone by that point but to let others in to see that the tomb was empty. Faithfulness is interested in everything about Jesus, and with this we'll close. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of who were looking on to see where he was laid. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Yet even when they did not realize what they had longed for for the last three years of following and being devoted to Jesus, even though they didn't realize him, see him sitting on the throne of David and ruling. Even though this was the lowest point in their life in the last three years, they were looking to see where he was laid. Brothers and sisters, think about this. It's the only time we look to Jesus, the only time we say hallelujah, praise the Lord, the only time we gather together and fellowship with one another, the only time we sing to him, the only time we worship him is when he's blessed us with something. When we like a little child, we we've asked one of our little gimme prayers, and he happens to bless us with something and answers that prayer. Only when something is good, when it's a sunny day and the temperature's in the 60s and the birds are singing. Is that when we're interested about Jesus? When he's done something? How about when our greatest hopes in this life, what we desire, does not come to pass? I've known people who've turned their back on the Lord and walked away. What does that say about their lack of faith, their lack of saving faith. They were looking to see even where he would be buried. Why? Because they were planning to still serve him. They would come back on resurrection morning with spices to embalm him further. I guess they were unaware that Joseph and Nicodemus had already done a fine job of it. But they were interested in everything, everything about Jesus. Even when it appeared that he let them down, they were still focused on him. Are we just a good time believer, or brothers and sisters, that we continue to follow Christ no matter what circumstances enter our life, no matter how much we may have been disappointed by a No answer to prayer from God. No, or be patient, wait. They were interested in everything. Today, will you purpose to daily fix your gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Today, brothers and sisters, will you purpose daily to serve him? if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, he went to that cross and bore the sins of the world in his body. He experienced the wrath and judgment of God so that all those who call upon him for salvation would never experience the judgment of God. He did it for the world, for any and everyone, for whosoever will place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He took your place on the cross. If you place your faith and trust in him, he experienced the judgment and wrath of God so that you would not have to if you place your faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, uh, how we admire these women. Oh, Lord, make us like them that we would always be looking unto you, Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you be pleased to strengthen us in the inner person, in the depths of our soul, in our hearts, so that we would follow you and serve you as diligently as these women did. Oh, Lord, be pleased to do this and bring yourself honor and glory from our lives. We ask all this for your name's sake.